Hello, and welcome to the Future of Coding. Today, I have James Couple on the podcast. James is a Carnegie Mellon grad. Uh, he's also a Teal Fellow. Um, I think part of his fellowship, he started Tarski Technologies, where they did program repair, which we're going to hear about in a second. He's also worked at a company called Semantic Designs, also in this uh, field of tools for programming languages, which we'll hear about soon. And he's currently doing a PhD in programming tools at MIT and runs a coaching business uh, helping programmers become better, uh, like more advanced. Uh, so welcome, James. Hello, Steve. Glad to be here. Yeah, really excited to have you here. I think there's a, a lot of really interesting topics that you are an expert in that uh, sh kind of surprisingly to me, uh, I, I don't know very much about. So I, I assume many of our listeners might also know, know, le know not very much about. I, I what I'm trying to say is um, th there are a lot of topics in this field that are kind of trodden ground. Uh, and, and there's, and there are you're, you're familiar with topics that aren't part of that. So. Yep. Yes. Uh, I always like to joke about some some of the fads like deep learning. No one likes it because it's too popular. And it's definitely me. I, I'm really, I, I'm a counterculture at heart. I like things because they're obscure, because I think they're important, but underappreciated. And I'll be happy to share a lot of that today. Cool. Well, so um, I, I thought um, because... For reading some of your writings, I got the sense that you are someone who um, has been in this field for a little while and you've gone down a lot of paths that proved to be dead ends and then backtracked and then gone down different paths. Um, I thought it was interesting to follow your story in that kind of more narrative way so, so we can sure. try and learn some of the lessons you learned the hard way, but you know, a little bit easier because we just can listen to it as opposed to living it like you did. Mm -hmm. uh, so I thought we'd start at the beginning. Um, who, who are your... Who or what were your first influences that made you excited about working on improving programming at like the tooling level or at the language level? So probably the best thing that ever happened to me is, I don't know what it was, just some combination of having seen the, the words, this project will be rewritten one too many times. One day in May 2010, I just woke up and it hit me that the world does not know how to write good software. And and ever since then, I've been very passionate about programming tools. And I happened to be in a very good place to suddenly get that passion. Uh, Carnegie Mellon is the, the world's number one university in programming languages and software engineering. Uh, it's one of it's one of the rel relatively few top schools to have a very strong research group in software engineering. So a huge influence in my early development was Jonathan Aldrich, who was my undergraduate research advisor at CMU. What kind of work do you guys do together? And what kind of work is he known for? I, funnily enough, he is one of the very few people in programming languages research who actually designs programming languages. Uh, uh, he has a pretty famous feud with another top type theorist, Bob Harper, about whether it makes a difference to a language so Bob Harper would say that SML and Haskell both had monads. There's no difference. Jonathan Aldrich says it's actually very important to the language design that monads is in the Haskell standard library and the special support for it, but not in languages like OCaml or SML. Uh, so the big thing that we worked on together was the Plaid language or type state oriented programming. Type states become a little bit more well known in recent years because of Rust. Things like the borrow checker and Rust are forms of type states. So type states all about the idea 
of so, so types let you prevent a program from passing in bad values. It's like basic things like you want a string, can't pass an integer. Also more advanced things like you need a positive integer uh, or you need a valid person. Mm -hmm. Type state lets you put protocols into the type system. And they found an empirical study, I think the number is that 13% of objects have some kind of protocol. That means that methods must be called in a certain order. So the canonical example is if for files, you must open them before they're read. And in plaid, you'll actually have separate types of file for open file and not. And a closed file does not have a read method. But when you open a file, it suddenly transitions into an open file. He's also, okay. he got a lot of press a few years ago uh, for the Wyvern language. Uh, it's, its big thing is um, TSLs. You've heard of DSLs, domain specific languages. These are TSLs, type specific languages. And the idea mm -hmm. is that, so I have a function which takes in a regular expression or some HTML. And so it its type is say regular, takes in a regular expression. Well, the compiler sees that and, and now it switches to a regular expression parser or, or an HTML parser. And so, and so you can mix many different languages, many different syntaxes into the same file in a way which is a lot more principled and elegant than other solutions. Uh, it was funded by the NSA because the NSA does random security things, which somehow that part of the headline got a lot of news. The, the monad feud, that sounds fascinating, but I didn't quite catch the disagreement there. Uh, so, at CMU especially, there are some very hardcore theoretical guys uh, who believe that who believe that the core semantics of a language are all that matters, the core type system, and 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 things like so. If I add a feature to a programming language, but that feature is very difficult to use, they would say that programming language has that feature, and that's what matters. And Jonathan actually thinks it's important what people actually do with a language. Hmm. Got it. Okay. Uh, and then these TSLs, um, I, I didn't quite catch a difference between them and DSLs. And it's it, it, it's basically is a DSL, but the so you call a function. This this function expects an argument of a certain type, and based on that type, you can just add it. You can just pass in a param, declare a parameter with with a DSL, and the compiler knows which DSL to use based on the type. Oh, okay, I got it. That makes that makes more sense. So, okay, I got it. That makes a little bit more sense to me. Um, okay, cool. Um, I. There was a quote that you, you had sent me um, that uh, you, the claim was that software maintenance is the number one solvable impediment to social progress. Yes. Did you believe that early on or was that something you came to realize over time? Uh, not exactly when I started to believe that. And back that up a bit. Obviously, the, saying the largest, it's a very hard claim to make because you have to go through every other possible candidate and do a comparative quantifier. I will very much defend the claim that it is a very, very, very large impediment to societal progress and that all kinds of change are at some point limited by our ability to change software. And this change is far harder uh, and than is needed. And there also are very purely technical solutions to the problem. 
technical solutions that can and reduce the cost of software maintenance by a factor of 100 in a relatively near to, near to future time frame. So over the course of a couple of decades. Hmm. Got it. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I think part, I want to harp on the, the word you use, software maintenance. It seems like yeah. a word you use a lot. Yep. Um, in, in my mind, software, maybe, like, I, I, I guess I'm kind of getting at how broad is maintenance. Uh, like, if you have a program that lives for a long time and you're constantly mm-hmm. adding to it, is that, because to me, maintenance is more like just making sure that it continues to run, but it's like incrementally adding features also maintenance? Yes, it is. Basically anything, anything that someone with a job title maintenance program would do is maintenance. So, so not like an application developer, like if I'm a regular software engineer at... Well, I mean, any, any developer does maintenance. So a lot of the examples I have in mind are... And so like any, any policy change. So the Social Security Administration has, I think it's about 60 million lines of COBOL. The joke is that it's one line of COBOL per retiree. Uh, and they have app, their applications talks to you 500 separate databases. And so anytime when you want to pass a law that changes Social Security, you throw that over the wall to the SSA and people there are going to have to modify the 60 million line COBOL program. Mm-hmm. So that's just one government agency of many. I know story there because Semantic Design did some work for them on doing program comprehension tools. Basically, any change you want to make to our institutions, if that institution runs on software, as does the SSA, then you have potentially a very, very large software means problem that makes the change much harder to roll out. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I don't, I think uh, when I hear maintenance, I, I think of a much more narrow definition yeah. of, of maintaining the status quo as opposed to um, the, the more dynamic definition you're, you're talking about. Um, but anyways, I, I agree with you. and I, I feel like it's not talked about enough. Um, I think people focus more on beginning new projects, which to me is crazy because that happens once. Yep. <laughs> And software maintenance is every other kind of programming, and it's like the more the most important kinds. So, um, so anyways, I, I'm with you. I, I, it, it was a fairly recent development where I realized, like, oh wait a second, like it's it's big projects, like, you know, hundreds of thousands, of, tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands of lines of code are, are the ones that we should be thinking about. Yep, they don't get all the flashy announcements, but that's where most of the labor is spent. Yeah. Um. Okay, so um, so yeah, continuing uh, chronologically. So it sounds like the first your first real adventure uh, post uh, university was with your company Tarski. Yeah, and so and you guys did program repair. So maybe yeah. you can talk a bit about what that is and what you tried to do. Sure. So the program repair is exactly what it sounds like. It's a problem of automatically fixing bugs in other programs, and. The general way that this looks is you start with your original program, which has a bug. The bug is exhibited by some failing test case, and you perform some kind of search for modifications to that program in order to make the test pass. Uh, Got it. So uh, the genesis of this was really when I started the TL Fellowship, I was looking for the things to do, preferably things which would let me keep working in this area once the TL Fellowship money ran out. And I was giving a talk at the Singularity Summit. Um, 
basically trying to argue that um, that advanced tools that accelerate that can accelerate the pace of programming are possible and coming slash year. And that's so I came across on um, the, the program repair work. And in late 2012, this is starting to become a hot topic because in in ICSI that year, ICSI is the International Conference on Software Engineering, it's the largest academic software engineering research conference. Claire Lipwest at University of Virginia, she's now a professor at Carnegie Mellon, and her co-authors, they had published a paper called A Systematic Study of Program Repair, Fixing 55 out of 108 Bugs for $8 each. So I found this paper as I was doing research for my talk, and I was pretty blown away by the results. And this sounded like something that could be pretty immediately commercialized. And so I started working on this probably a little bit or a lot too fast. Basically, I didn't know all the things you have to check to make sure a startup idea is a good idea. People yeah. talk about, oh, the idea doesn't matter, it's the execution. Mm -hmm. And that is totally false. Because, you know, oh, ideas are a dime a dozen. And product ideas are a dime a dozen. But ideas with the potential to, that, to germinate into a business with a sales plan, with marketing plan, with a growth plan, with, which are defensible. Oh, things that can be done now, things things where you can create a crappy prototype and still sell it and not have to have something perfect that in order to work. Those ideas are very rare. So I did not know the kind of rigorous testing of the idea that need to be done before committing to it. There are also some specific issues to trying to build a company based off research, especially research which is not your own, which is first understanding Understanding that academics are usually a little bit pompous and they'll part of their job is to craft a really nice story and a presentation and to funding agencies about how their work is going to have a huge impact. And often the story is based on a bit something a little bit idealized. Uh, there's a particular controversy with, with the Genprog program repair work I was working on, which we can talk about in a minute. And there's also the fact you, you can never turn a paper into a company. You can, only, you can turn a research area into a company, but not a paper. And even if you, even if you read and understand every paper in an area, that does not make you an expert in the area. And it does not mean that you'll be able to instantly respond to different variations to your problem or modif modify, modify the work to existing barriers, know what issues can come up. So much of that stuff is hidden and can it's not really a good way to get it other than hands-on experience. And so I was basically in the position of learning three very hard things the hard way all at once, which is business fundamentals, general software engineering stuff, like how to like how to build a distributed cloud of different program repair servers, because this is a very computationally expensive approach. Mm -hmm. uh, you're running hundreds or thousands of variants of, a, of an industrial program as well as at learning the research side. Mm -hmm. So that was a bit too much at once. Uh, I believe it. Um, so yeah, you said you were going to talk a bit more about the Genprog approach. Ah, uh, yeah. So uh, Genprog, uh, this is, so program repair has become a pretty hot topic nowadays. There are dozens of papers published in conferences every year about it. 
probably in the order of 10 or 20 research groups working on this. There is now an entire website on permanent-repair.org, uh, which collects all these. I actually used to own that domain because I bought it during my Tarski days, but I sold it to someone who manages it now. <laughs> so the field has advanced a lot, but I was kind of doing this in the early days. This time, GenProg was the only game in town. And the way it works is almost too simple, which is they have a pretty restricted, they have a pretty restricted space of patches. So, and so they're trying to create a patch script. A patch script has sequences of three kinds of commands, um, which are copy one line of code from one place to another to delete a line of code. And see, where are they? I think it's insert, replace, and delete. Some some variation of that. It's been a while. So they do so it doesn't and, invent new lines of code from scratch. Yeah. Yes. It only copies things from one place the program to to another. And, uh, because in their particular approach, they did not have if they were to try to invent new lines of code, they did not have a very good way to prune the search space. So it'd be way too hard. Yeah. And, and so something that I discovered, which oh. So as a side as a side note, which has actually become pretty important to the research I do now, most program program transformations tend not to work on the original source code. Uh, they usually pre-process it into a simplified version first. And because of that, it's actually is very hard to render the changes back to the source tree. Mm -hmm. So so for the original system, it was actually pretty hard to understand what it was doing because you get a, tr a result on pre-process code. It's not obvious. Like it, it inserted a line of this pre-process code. That line corresponds to part of a line of the original code, and it can be hard to understand what exactly happened. So even though I had all the results and I saw all the, the changes that it made, it's been quite a while to realize that the patches it was producing uh, were actually quite bad. And a later researcher, and it's actually someone at MIT, discovered that the main way it worked, that most of its patches actually had the effect of just deleting code until a test passed, which is still potentially useful. Like I sometimes do debugging just by commenting out half my code, commenting out half of that, but much less useful especially for something that's this sophisticated and this expensive computationally. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And so by the time I discovered that, I'd already was quite invested. And I I did not have a and basically I was stuck. It's like, okay, I need to do a different kind of repair algorithm. And there weren't very many published at the time for me to draw from. So in the very end of the days, I tried switching to a different algorithm based on a paper called PAR, which used a small number of patch templates. And of course, that work had its own problems, which is that it was later it was later pointed out by another guy, um, Martin Monprodus, now in Sweden, that most of that system, so their system reported, oh, we can do all these patches, but actually mostly just fixed null pointer errors. 
but that was also not obvious from reading their paper. So it's a, it's a reason, especially in programming languages where every paper is reporting on a 10,000 line system, reading the paper does not give you a very strong understanding of what actually happened. Yeah, that, that does seem like quite a, quite a problem. Yeah, now now I can see what more what you mean that you have to be that it's hard to do to implement someone else's paper in a company setting. Um, yeah, you yeah, ba basically you should be an expert in the field beforehand, or you should be in an R and D department where you have time and funding to become an expert first. That makes sense. I'm trying to think, I, I actually have, have examples that violate this idea. Uh, or, or like, just uh, I'm trying to think of companies that came from academia, and um, so I'll give you, I'll give you one that might not be on your radar. You've heard of Agitar Software? Agitar. Agitar. They, they have an ex A G I T A R. No, I haven't. Oh, Agitar was a bit of a big name in the early two thousands, and it was founded by. It was founded by uh, a couple people who had previously founded another successful company. Things started with a V, but they already had done a major exit. Uh, two of the founders were, were Rubenko Doom and Alberto Savoya. I've talked to both of them. They might have had a third co-founder. I believe Rubenko does have a PhD, uh, or one of them, at least one of them does. Uh, but so their idea was based on a very famous work by Michael Ernst, who is now at the University of Washington, called DICON. DICON is a dynamic generation of programming variants. And it's an idea which kind of sounds simple, and I've heard random people suggesting similar, but it was still surprising that it worked this well, enough that Michael Ernst's advisor told him that it was never going to work. And then 10 years later, he won the best, most impactful 10-year paper award for it. Wow. So, so the idea is basically, if this function runs a lot, and every single time it's run, x greater than 0, maybe x greater than 0 is an invariant. And you can then present this to a user and say, is x greater than 0 an invariant to this function? They say yes. Cool, now you have that. You can use it in verification. You can also generate tests from it. So generate a test at x greater than zero. Uh, that's essentially what the agitar agitator did. It would do various kinds of random fuzz testing on your program, it would present you a list of variants, and it would generate tests from it. Hmm. And that's so, and it worked. Yeah, and so as my impression is that they had basically had been just directly inspired by that paper without other, when maybe with a lot of general te general technical experience, but not exact expertise. I'm also told that there are two other companies that people tried to found based on this DICON idea, but the other two were much less successful. Uh, Agitar raised in the tens of millions. I think they hit about 25 million in annual revenue. And then the CEO said, we have 25 million revenue, but the market's too small, and they shut down the company. And that's another interesting story. 
that's kind of wacky. I guess that might be a, uh, I guess maybe their revenue wasn't sustainable. Uh, so when I talked to Runko, the summary he gave was just said, see, uh, getting, getting there was very hard. Uh, but so some things happened. Um, one thing is that when they started the company, I think they started in, in the 90s, or at least around 2000, it was pretty common that companies would pay thousands of dollars for an IDE seat. Then IBM open sourced Eclipse, and the tools market in general created a bit. And now, now today we have the culture that people are always chasing freemium models or trying to indirectly make money off tools because there's now a culture where everyone expects tools to be free. And so this is another of my big beliefs right now that we're in a feedback loop where people, people don't want to pay for software tools because software tools aren't paying, worth paying for aren't really out there. Uh, and people aren't making software tools worth paying for because no one's paid for them. So an initiative I've been toying with for a while is trying to convince a bunch of open source tool developers to refuse to give away their stuff for free in hopes of breaking this feedback cycle and getting a more functioning tools industry. Uh, that's something that I'm not sure will work. Yeah, that, that's tricky. Um, I, I, I guess a lot of us have been thinking about you know, this question of sustainability in open source. I'm, have you seen Nadia Engelwald's uh, work? Nadia who? No, I, I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Um, I think it begins with an E. Um, I think on some places she goes by Nafia. Um, there's a lot of work on the sustainability of open source and, and mm. like creative models to fund things. Okay, I'll check that out. But anyway, um, what I was going to say to you, to your your plan is, um, yeah, I agree with you. It's seen, it's like it's a tough, it's a hard sell because um, price is. Uh, like a function of supply and demand. And the problem with software tools, in, in from my eyes, is that the supply is so high, like it's infinite, that the price will always be zero. Uh, uh, it's like yeah. similar to how like everyone wants to be an actor. Well, so, so this, the supply of individual already developed software tools is, is infinite. Um, but the price, the, pro, but the, for most software tools that we can build, it would be very valuable. The supply is zero. So this is one of the big uh, driving ideas behind the business model of semantic designs, which mm -hmm. is they've spent 20 years building their DMS infrastructure, making these tools easier to build. What does DMS stand for? Uh, DMS stands for design maintenance systems. Um, but bas basically, Think of the standard tools that you build, use to build a compiler, like the parser generator, you know, a pretty printer generator, static analysis frameworks, all that stuff. And just think that they spent somewhat, some crazy guys in Texas spent 20 years building this very fancy, very integrated infrastructure that no one else understands. So they, they can do some pretty crazy stuff in a short period, period of time, but it has only been a couple occasions when they've been able to sell the same tool twice. Usually someone comes and says, and says, I have IBM and Cobol 8, 
I want you to translate it to Java. And they say, cool, we did that. We built a tool for that for another company. And then they discover it's a different IBM Cobol 8. And they'd have to build a new tool just for them. And they say, sure, we can do it. Price is a million dollars. And usually people walk away at that point. So most tools that would be really amazing are just not going to be built. So supply is zero. That's interesting. It's interesting because the demand is so high and nobody's stepping up to solve it. Yeah, but that's, that's basically... It's basically the major motivator of my current research, which is the market is so heterogeneous that amazing things for every problem in every language can be built, and none, and none of them are worth building. So my research nowadays is all about how to make programming tools more general and easier to build. Got it. Okay. That, that helps me contextualize um, your current research. Um, so, but before we go on your current research... Um, do you want to linger a bit on semantic designs and, t and sure. share a few more stories or, or lessons learned from working sure. on They sound fascinating. Yeah. Semantic designs is just completely awesome. And not many people know about them. How did you find out? And I actually found it a bit randomly in, in 2012. I Googled the word re-engineering, and they're one of the first results. And I followed them for a while. And I had a three-hour lunch with Ira. And in 2014, when I was visiting University of Texas for grad school, and he invited me to come work for them. And so I spent the summer of 2016 working with them. And basically, I spent those three months trying to download Ira Baxter's brain, because mm -hmm. he's been building programming companies since about 1970. He's been doing programming tools since for over 20 years. Actually, really back to grad school over 30 years ago. So... Wow. He has a huge number of war stories that I've just tried to download into my brain. Yeah, so uh, where, where do we start? What can you share that you think would be interesting to... to so, or, or I guess maybe one way to filter out uh, the stories that would, you should share is like what has informed your own direction the most? Like what, what's, what, store, what things did you learn from him that, you, that like, you were like, oh, I thought this was a good idea before, but now Ira has explained to me that it's a bad idea. Or, um, so a big thing is his stories and implementing front-ends for different programming languages. Semantic Designs has over 100 language front-ends. A language front-end, it's not, it's not like a GUI. It's a language front-end refers to the parser, the pretty printer, basically anything that deals with the raw input of a, lang of a programming language, which is usually the, the source text, and converts into artifacts that the other compiler infrastructure can deal with. So... So actually, here is my own story from my time there. And I got the idea going in that Lua was the simplest real programming language. And so while I was learning their stuff, I decided to build a front end for Lua for them. And actually, that is not the case at all. Lua is super dynamic. And, and its lexer is non-context, is non-regular. It's actually, I think it's not even non-context free in that you can, just determining where a comment starts and ends requires the ability to match the number of consecutive equal signs in their syntax. Uh, so you told me a lot of other stories about other languages which are crazy. Oh, so yeah, just the problem of raw in decoding infinite dreams is actually kind of tricky. So in Python, 
uh, one of the first two lines must declare the character encoding of the file. So somehow you have to guess the character encoding long enough to read the string that tells you the character encoding in order to read the rest of the file. They did a project with a Japanese multinational company. And part of the reason they got the job is that they dealt with, 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 with the Japanese character encoding, which is called ShiftGIS. And the people were just so impressed, they dealt with ShiftGIS. That's part of why they got the job. Uh, I think there's some case in Ruby where, um, so they have a, their, their Lexer, the Lexer is the thing that turns the raw source text into a stream of tokens. So it goes from like, here's an I, here's an F to here's an if token. And they had different Lexer modes, which is a pretty good idea that other Lexer generators I've seen do not have where it can see a character and say, all right, we're switching to a different lesser now. And they have a stack of these, these modes. And I, they found some cases in Ruby where they actually needed to dis, dispatch on the current lesser stack. So people will talk about lexing being a solved problem, and, but dealing with all the, the asynchronies of real languages is absolutely crazy. Uh, you have languages where keywords there are key, things that are keywords in some contexts, but variable names in others. You have some languages where white space, white, and every language calls itself white space insensitive, and, but there are languages where more white space insensitive. You can put white space in the middle, in the middle of, a, of a keyword and it's nothing, or, or having a space in a variable name. All this makes me uh, want like a checklist from, I guess you or from Ira, like Ira's list for uh, things to not include in the programming language to make it bad, you know, like, because uh, it feels like, um, or, or maybe it's easier than that. Like, is, uh, how can programming language designers not make these mistakes? How, how can they make a, a syntax that's easy to parse? Yeah, so uh, that that's uh, that's a, a a pretty good question, and that there are a lot of these things which anyone in which anyone in program analysis be super obvious that it makes things difficult. Um, so, so one example is in the IEC 6113 state standard, which is this international standard for uh, certain kinds of control systems. Um, there is one, there's one part of it I think it's a ladder logic language, but there are five different languages in the standard, so don't quote me on which one it is. There's one part of it which is basically a basically a long change of if conditions and actions. If this controller has a signal greater than 80, then do this. Very long chain of this. So that could be paralyzed. You can tr try all these conditions at once. Then someone decided to add go to to this language. If you have a go to, then all of a sudden there are dependencies in the control flow between things that used to be con control independent. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they cannot be paralyzed. They, mu they must have some kind of sequential order. Got it. So, well, so to me, it sounds like uh, we're talking on two different levels. So the go-to is like um, on the program verification, like semantic layer. Uh, and so all these things kind of fit together as far as decisions you can make in language design, which yes. make it harder to analyze, harder to parse, harder to lex. 
Yeah. Well, I think harder to analyze is on one is like okay. kind of higher level than parsing and lexing. On um, okay, so just talking about parse, lexing, and parsing, a simple, a simple, and um, there, there's an easy thing that's if your own parser and lexer in your compiler infrastructure is easy to write, then so will others, and um, and. If you're strict, if you're strict yourself to something that could be parsed using Antler or using some kind of CFG generator, then other people can do so too. Yeah. And if you don't, if you don't rely on parse actions, so if you can parse your program and then interpret it, and not have something that runs in the middle and says, if you see the symbol, do this, and that affects whether something later is valid. Mm -hmm. So you don't add any, any context sensitive kind of stuff. Then it'll be easier to deal with. Got it. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I I feel like uh, if you, it, it it almost like the the answer is as simple as like make sure it's a, a context free grammar. And yes. That I get you like eighty percent of the way there. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Um, but I do. I, I think I, I haven't really thought about that problem too much. I my thoughts tend to linger more on where you were going with like. Um, how do you make programming language that don't have bad constructs that mm -hmm. de decrease the way to uh, decrease your power of casual inference? Yeah. And so go to is the classic example, go to considered harmful. Um, but I was kind of going through a lot of the things in programming languages and recently, in, you know, in my mind, and it occurs to me that almost everything is harmful or like there, there's, there may be more harmful than there may be, more things to get rid of than things to remain. Uh, and, and it depends what your goal is. So there's a very classic tension between the flexibility and and the ability to reason. And yeah. that uh, the more things that can happen in one place, then then well, the more things you can do, the more things you have to think about. And, so an example of this is inheritance. Inheritance. Inheritance says, uh, "I can have I can have one function, which can which can be overridden to mean many different things, and there's dynamic dispatch that determines which one." So that's lets you do a lot of things, and uh, and people have take done some pretty hardcore stuff with this. So. Uh, for example, you can take a language like Ruby or JavaScript, and you can or Julia. And you can override all the basic functions like plus and times, in order to return it, in order to return a parse tree instead of actually doing the operation. And you can implement all kinds of advanced tools based on that idea, like symbolic execution. Uh, but that also means when you see one x plus one, you don't actually have an idea what's happening. Yeah. And so there's this very beautiful line from from a classic essay by William Cook called "Understanding Data on Understanding Data Abstraction Revisited," which I think is one of the best readings of computer science I've ever seen. Wow, I haven't heard of this one. Can, can you uh, repeat it one more time? On understanding on understanding data abstraction, comma revisited by William Cook, who's a professor at UT Austin. Cool. I'm excited about yeah. this. There's also the follow-up, which written by my advisor at CMU, Jonathan Aldrich, which I have a teeny acknowledgement on. 
which is called the power the power of interoperability why objects are inevitable and and both these are very good because there's most industrial programmers and most academic research as well have a major misunderstanding of what objects in object-oriented programming actually are. And the theorists have come up with very good answers to this question, which explain very, very well, explain when objects are the right thing to use, when they're not, uh, when inheritance is a good idea, when it's not. But most people don't know this stuff. Uh, the reason I brought this up was a little side comment in the first, the first essay I mentioned, which is objects have been written designed to be as flexible as possible. It's almost as if they were designed to be as difficult to verify as possible. Yeah, I, I'm with you. And, and I think we all feel that tension. Um, you can describe it in a lot of different ways, like people who write, inter like people who like interpreted languages, dynamic languages, versus people who like static languages, compiled languages. Uh, it's like, yeah, you have Ruby and JavaScript and Python on one side and Haskell and Rust on the other side. Yeah. And I want to uh, point out that the generalized version of this tension happens not just in language design, but really every single time you call a function. And that's uh, the caller has a desire for the preconditions of this function to be as broad as possible so that it can apply to the current situation. Whereas the function has a desire to make the preconditions as narrow as possible, so the function, so so the function is easy to write. Hmm. That's interesting. I because I think when I'm using a function, when I'm the caller, you know, uh, as a programmer, I want the function to like I'm so nervous, like I have no idea what it's going to do. I kind of want it to be as narrow as possible. Um. So. If the, if, the, if the precondition is so narrow that it does not include the current state, then, so you, call it, then you call it without satisfying your preconditions, and its contract says anything can happen. So you want it to be easy to satisfy the preconditions. Otherwise, I can't even use the function? Yeah. But, and conversely, you know, the conversely, but the preconditions are too broad then it becomes very difficult to change the function because it's used in so many different ways. Interesting. Yeah, I, I think I kind of, maybe I'm like very much on the, um, I like the reasonability is, is important to me more than, than the flexibility. So I, I feel like it runs in the opposite direction for me. When I'm writing a function, mm -hmm. I, I want, like sometimes I'll get, uh, you know, tricked into making it more generalizable than than it needs to be, but when I'm using a function, I I like really desperately want it to be as dumb simple as possible because so I can understand what it's doing. Yeah, I'd rather just write my own function than than use someone else's function that I don't understand. Oh. I think those aren't necessarily intention, and I'm, I'm also not entirely sure I understand your position right now. Hmm. Okay. Um, well, we can move on. Well, actually, I want to linger on, on this uh, divide a little bit more because I think it is fascinating because um, it's a little bit dispiriting, I think, for both sides to think that there isn't a right answer. It just kind of depends on your situation. Um, well, and any time when two components in software interact, it's a negotiation. Uh, and... Yeah, there is kind of something fundamental about both sides' negotiation wanting different things. 
Well, so um, the perspective of large software projects that we need to maintain, to me, it seems like, um, it, like it seems like in that context, which is most contexts, large software programs need to maintain. It yeah. seems like reasonability and maintainability, uh, reasonability uh, and strictness is so much more important than flexibility. Because flexibility is like a, a makes it easier for you to write things, but makes it so much harder for you to read things. And so, for for me, uh, it's it's pretty clear. Okay, serious, serious. What I'm um, this audio cut out briefly. What makes it easier to write things and harder to read things? Oh, um, so having more flexibility uh, yeah. on any line of code, anything can happen. That makes it easier to write things, but it makes it so much harder to read code, even that you've written, but especially code that other people have written. Okay, so so. So I imagine for, for you, who you're interested in ma the maintainability of, of large pro programs, you would be much more on the verifiability. And I'm so I'm generally a fan of having pretty restricted in interfaces. Yeah. Um, a line I like to repeat a lot is that the power of a software design is not what it can do, but in what it can't do. Your, your goal as a software designer is to is to design it in a way where all the things that you need to happen can happen and all the things that you don't want to happen can't happen. And generally, when a function accepts a broader space of inputs, then that goal becomes harder. And, yeah. and it's, there's a bit of a, a ratchet effect uh, that you have, a, you have a function with 10,000 callers and that call it in 20 different ways. You must con continue supporting all those 20 different ways of calling it unless you go around through and change those 10,000 calls. Mm -hmm. And obviously there's a continuum. There's, there's a continuum of this ratchet effect from a function which is called once in the same file all the way up to the HTTP standard where someone misspelled the word refer back in the 80s and that's never ever going to be changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, I, okay, there's one other question that's... Um, semi-related to this this sort of stuff that I wanted to ask. Um, then we can move on to Cubix, because I'm excited mm -hmm. about that. Um, so I, it's it, very specific to me, but I, I think it might be common to other people too. So I, I thought you might have some good thoughts here. So I um, was given a job where I was given a, a few thousand lines of JavaScript uh, mm -hmm. that were written years ago and were written by someone who was new to programming. And so <laughs> they're like unmaintainable. Yep callback hell, et cetera. And so they wanted the code to do exactly what it does now, uh, but just be cleaner. Mm -hmm. And so, it was, and I just had to do it with with my eyes, basically. I, I added tests, but um, it just drove me, it drove me a little bit crazy that I didn't have like formal tools to prove that like this, on, this these lines of code never happen. And, you know, it, it, it's more complicated than the, like their after return statement, like, you know, there are quite, there's some reasoning that has to be done in order to prove that they don't happen, but it's, it's very straightforward proofs. So I have to do them in my head. There's no formal tools for these kind of things. Um, I was wondering if you had thoughts on... Yeah, and that's going back to what I said earlier about most tools that can be built, just the supply is zero. Uh, that's, but most, all these tool things that we know how to build that can help you with that, there aren't very many actually around. Uh, when I was at Semantic Designs, they have an employee who used to have another company called Blacksbox IT, and they built uh, they built 
some program comprehension tools for COBOL. One of the things they did was this thing called program slicing. Program slicing is an idea invented by Dr. Weiser or Dr. Weiss in the 80s, where you take a program, you say, pick one variable or one output and say, give me just the parts of this program that affect that one output. And we'll trace back and find that for you. So I was surprised so that, to find that in the COBOL world, there actually are a bunch of tools that, that do this. Whereas in the rest of the industry, I had never heard of anything actually used commercially that does this. There are lots of academic tools. It's a very old idea, very well known. Nothing that anyone could just download and use. So oh, I'm actually reminded of a, of a JavaScript task that I had to do during my time to optimize, uh, which also involves refactoring some thousand lines of unmaintainable JavaScript. And a tool that I wish I had at the time is actually a, a semantic designs tool, one of their few off-the-shelf tools, not these custom migrate your tiresome things, but much smaller thing, where they have one of the world's best clone detectors, meaning that it meaning that it can search through your code base through it can search through your code base and discover um, common patterns in, in the code. Um, there are a couple other tools that do this. Um, so there's a there's a company called Pattern Insight, which I think was acquired by VMware, um, which can also do this at a much greater scale, so like for millions of lines of code, but it's not as flexible in their pattern matching. So I've, read, I've looked at the outputs of the Spanish Design Clone Detector, and I find some very interesting things. Uh, so for discovering common concepts that I could refactor, it would, would have been invaluable. Got it, okay. Um, it, you reminded me of one other topic I want to touch on before we mm -hmm. talk about so you you talked so there's this whole field I guess of program comprehensibility yeah so I'm fascinated by this field um, so one approach is program slicing mm -hmm. what other approaches are there um, I'm not super familiar with this subfield um, there is I'll tell you a couple things I do know so there's a work from the 90s uh, by Gail C Murphy and David Notkin which I like a lot. It's called reflection models, reflection with an X. It's basically about this interactive tool for helping programmers build a map of a code base in their head. So it starts like this. You look at a code base and you say, okay, I think this part is IO, I think this part is data management. And, and you just mainly write, write these ideas down. It's like this file is IO and says, okay. And then based on that, it generates a component connectivity graph where it says, all right, here's everything you said was part of the, the IO code. And then it draws lines between them for, uh, think basically call graph or, or data references. And you see, oh, this function, there is this subcluster within that, that, which is very heavily connected, or this thing I said was an IO, but it has all these you know, interactions with the data management part. And then from that, you can refine your map. You can break things down to finer components, move things around, try again. And so they had, an, they had a case study where uh, a guy on Microsoft, he was in this, trying to do this big Excel refactoring project. He saw their, their talk, tried it at work, and, 
And after four weeks, he said that he had gotten a deep enough understanding of the Excel code base that he thinks would have taken him two years without the tool. So this is super cool and exciting. Yeah. But uh, so they built two different tools that did reflection models, one for C++, one for Java. And you can get neither of them today. Huh. This is my go-to example of ways in which tool development is behind in some ways where we were 20 years ago. Got it. Okay. Um, that makes sense. I um, I guess I just wanted to try one, th one thing out on you and then we'll continue with your okay. story. So um, the research that, I, that I'm working on now is on... I, I think it's in the field of, of program comprehensibility, mm -hmm. but I'm taking a very different approach. Uh, my approach is that w uh, the, the languages we have today don't lend themselves well to comprehensibility. So mm -hmm. I, like we need to rest vastly restrict what's, what, what's allowed to do. Like, for example, no go-to statements would be something that I'd yeah. want to kick out of the language. Um, so anyways. Um, uh, as a little side note, I don't think go-tos are... They're interprocedural go-tos. I don't think they are that important for comprehensibility. And that if it doesn't affect the interface of the function, then it's a local problem. It makes it one function hard to understand, but not the system. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, yeah, but the, it turns, it like effectively turns that local function into like a black box, um, which is okay. Potentially. Yeah, which is okay if you're, if you're okay with it. Um, I'll point out that in the systems programming world, it's pretty widely known that huh. that go to is the best contract in the C language for error handling. So it's still very much used. It's still very much used. Interesting. Um, well, I guess um, my question here is it seems like you are very much taking this polygot approach where uh, you, you, your your thought is that tools are too expensive to build for one language. Mm -hmm. So if I build approaches that uh, allow tools to be built for any language, then then you know that that, that kind of solves this problem. Yep. Uh, my my uh, inkling or whatever my like predilection in this my like tactic is to just build a, a, a language that's just better, uh, and then and then somehow. Um, Yep. Like build a yeah. language that lends itself to, to tooling better. So then, uh, so then, it, so that's how I decrease the cost of creating tools. Yeah, uh, I think definitely some people will share your, will, will share that idea. Um, a very extreme example is a, there is a, uh, a, there's a language called Paracel, Paracel, which is created by Tucker Taft. Uh, not, uh, I last heard about it. I saw a presentation about it many years ago. But basically, it was designed to be a very restricted language. Like, I think it was, I think it might not even let you do recursion. The idea that it would be so restricted that it'd be very easy to write tools for and very easy to super optimize and parallelize automatically. Yep. So that's the relatively extreme approach. Got it. Uh, cool. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely some tools are easier. Some languages are easier to build tools for than others. That's one of the reasons you see so much academic work focusing on Java. And Java compared to C++, compared to Python is, is pretty tame. You can do a lot of things just with the bytecode, which is, which is pretty well designed. 
Okay. And, but, and obviously, there is a lot of old stuff in existence, and it's not going away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense, but particularly from your experience at Semantic Designs. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you're, you like, intimately familiar with, you know, massive code bases of, of dead languages. Yep. Or I guess the, the other way to put it is that, like, programming yeah. languages don't die. Yeah, yeah. If you're... No, if you get a pay stub, there is a pretty high chance it was processed by ADP and went through a large 40-year-old COBOL system. But not yeah, COBOL, yeah. Actually, not COBOL assembly for a dead language. Uh, uh, yeah. Probably uh, a lot of other things will go through COBOL systems. The company I uh, started, we use ADP, so there you oh. go. Um, cool, so let's let's uh, stop talking around it. Let's talk about Cubix. T- tell me a bit about sure. um, how you got the idea and, and what your novel approach is. Yeah, so, so Cubix is my framework for language parametric transformation. The tagline is one tool, many languages. So here's a motivating story for why this is important. Uh, when I was at Facebook as an intern in 2010, they had a lot of privacy bugs. And it was things like, so in Facebook, you, do, you can upload private photos or things only your, your friends should see. And the way you go to someone's photos, say view photos, it would fetch the photos, it would check which ones you can see and show you those ones. And that is error prone because you need to remember to do the same thing any other place where you could view the photos. One place where they did not do that is in the report profile button. So if you went to report someone's someone's profile, you could say this profile is bad because of its photos. It has an illegal photo. Say, okay, which photo do you want to report? And there you can see all the photos. And they had a lot of other things like this. Another thing was for a few hours, there is the button that says, what is my pro- how does Bob see my profile? What does it look like to him? For a few hours, you press that button. You were actually logged in as Bob and see his private messages. Wow. So they needed to do a whole program refactoring in order to fix this. And their idea was to an architectural change. They would create a viewer context object, uh, which... And instead of having to remember to ch- every time you display a photo, check whether it should be visible, instead you would move all that to a central location. When you get photos in the database, right there you would pull out all the ones which should not be visible eventually. So they need to pass through this viewer context parameter through many, many, many tens of thousands of functions. And they took a couple dozen of their best engineers off their other projects. Um, they locked them in a conference room called the candidate room. So this is the candidate team. Basically, they spent every waking moment for several weeks just add, adding just these parameters to function calls. And so as an intern, I had this like piece of the code that no one else was working on. I wake up one day and get a merge conflict. Like, who else worked in this? These people did. They added some, they added some parameter passing. So basically a mass amount of effort adding parameters to functions throughout the code base. In 2014, Dropbox had a different problem with a similar solution. Right now, I'm logged to Dropbox on my PC. I actually have two accounts on this computer. I have my personal Dropbox. I have my MIT work Dropbox. They also need to add an account parameter to many thousands of functions in order to implement this. Uh, they obviously did a lot of other things too, but that was a large part of it. 
And I'm told that it was the number one project for the year 2014. At the time, we had over 100 engineers. So two companies, massive change, adding parameters to functions. It's, this is the kind of thing you can hire semantic designs to build a magic button that does for you. But if both of them had gone to semantic designs or hired some other programming transformation experts, uh, they would not have gotten the economy of scale from having the same problem twice because Facebook, PHP, Dropbox, Python. So, so this wouldn't be solved via the multiple front ends that semantic design has? They'd have, to, they'd have to build the same thing separately. Maybe they could share some code, but not that much. Got it. But with Cubix, you could build the same tool for both languages. And in fact, we did. So in our Cubix paper, we built a prototype of a tool that does this. And, and in the space of less than a week, we built this prototype and got it running on C, Java, JavaScript, Lua, and Python. Which are the five languages that Cubix currently supports, not yet PHP. In, a, in one week? Yeah. Well, I, the well, prototype is not that sophisticated. But the big thing is, is that we are still sharing most of the work between languages because we can using the Cubix approach. Got it. Okay. So yeah. So what's the what's the approach? How how'd you how'd you do it? Uh, it's, it's called incremental parametric syntax. Um, and it's basically is an is an exist a, a recent existing idea, but with a small addition that makes all the difference. Um, it's an extension of some earlier work on modular syntax, and particularly particularly something that's well known in the Haskell community called data type a la carte. Data types a la carte lets you say. I'm going to define a programming language in terms of different fragments. Here's my control flow fragment that has while loops and if statements. Here is a fragment that has go-tos. Here's a fragment that has functions. Here's a fragment that has plus and minus. And I can put these together into a language. And I can def define a, a transformation or an analysis that runs at each of these parts separately. And when I put them together, I get the transformation or analysis for the whole language. And some people took this, made it better, made it easier, easier to scale. But they still have the problem that if you wanted to do this for C, what you would do is you would basically take every piece of C. Uh, the, stand, the C spec is about 100 pages, which is small for a language spec. And you'd go and implement every single part as a generic fragment. So you'd have a generic function of fragments that handles C and hopefully some other languages. You'd have oh, generic pointer fragments. Every single thing is in C. You'd somehow need to mod model generically. And this is very hard because basically, you, if you had generic functions, which would be used in C and Java, you would somehow need them to be the same, which they're not. So, it couldn't, so this approach couldn't really handle mismatches between languages, or as I say, Language parametric transformation, sharing code between tools for languages, it should be possible because languages are similar, but it's hard because languages are also different. Yep. So we made a small addition to this idea called sort injections, uh, where basically I can now say things like here is a generic function declaration, and it has a list of, of arguments. But what an argument is, 
differs by language, and I can and I have a way of saying for this language this is an argument. And similarly, like for variable declarations, I can say, you know, a variable declaration uh, is a list of left-hand sides, is a list of de declaration binders, and each each declaration binder potentially has some attributes. And then for each language, I can say what those things are. So, so in C, a declaration binder could be could have, could have a pointer. In in Lua, you can can declare many variables simultaneously. You can say like var x comma y, or as a list, given JavaScript too. Uh, in Java, you can have attributes on each declaration, like you know. Uh, you can say int x comma y brackets, and x yep. is just int, y is an array. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. Uh, this makes where, a lot of sense. Yeah. So, whereas yeah. in JavaScript, you don't have that. So you can. So we have this nice thing where different languages share common parts that you can write against, but you can still capture all the idiosyncrasies of each language. Cool. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. So uh, I just want to backtrack a bit. I had, I had two questions. Okay. The first one, so you mentioned this data structures a la carte thing, yep. which sounds fascinating. Um, I'm, I, and I imagine a lot of listeners are pretty familiar with Haskell. So could you give like a, a, can you explain how this is used in Haskell? Sure. So that's actually is a new name for an even older idea from the term writing community called sum of signatures. And I think the best way to understand it is to take a step back from your so Haskell has algebraic data types. You can say data data tree equals leaf of int or binary node of tree comma tree. Yep. And uh, you can take a step back from that and look at the theory of how these are defined. And they're actually are defined in three separate phases. So first, each of those things like leaf node those are called constructors, and they're just tuples. So the, a leaf has an int, it's a tuple of ints, a one tuple. The node, interior node ha, is a pair or a triple, say as two children and another int. So that's the first step, uh, is getting these constructors. Then you can say a tree is one of these many constructors, that's a sum, it's an or. And and at this point, I've said, I really, I, really, I've said, these are what my nodes look like, but I don't have the trees yet. So maybe I say my language has an add node, and it's an end, I can add two expressions together. What's an expression? I haven't defined that yet. The point at which you define what the expressions are is when you do a fixed point. Uh, when you add recursion to the data type, you can say, feed this thing back into itself. So oh, when you just have a list of different node types, but you don't know what their children are, this is all very modular. It's only when you add the fixed point or tie the recursive knots, as I say, that, it become, that becomes very tied to the current state. Uh, so what data types a la carte does is it lets you program get signatures rather than term types. So you basically 
write things in a way of an add is a plus of two expressions. What is an expression? I'll tell you later. And you leave a type variable for what the children are going to be. And at some point later, you say, uh, so I define this, this list of nodes, which is either an add or multiply or an if statement, and they have children. I, what are those children? Now I'll tell you. It's the thing I just defined. That's the recursive fixed point. Okay, uh, it, it, um, I have a little more clarity. Um, so, um, so to speak it back to you, it sounds like the sum of squares and um, this data types a la carte are like essential to the implementation of algebraic data types. In the actual type theory, an algebraic data type is defined at, from three basic type theory components: recursive types, sums, and products. Got it. Okay. And uh, like a, a tree with two nodes, that's a sum. Uh, yeah. So, so, so the product is saying, I have a type variable t, t cross t. It's a pair of t's. What's a t? It's a variable. The sum would be saying int plus t cross t. So it's either an int or it's two of these t things. I haven't told you what a t is yet. And then the final stage say, say mu of t dot int plus t cross t. So there you say, what is, what is a t? It's a one plus a t cross t. And that's a recursive type. And when you actually spend that out, it becomes, what's a tree? Either it's an int or, uh, or it's, uh, or it's two ints, or, or basically, well, when you actually substitute one one plus t cross t in for t recursively, you get this infinite sum, which describes every single shape of a binary tree. Uh, Got it. okay. It's pretty fascinating. Uh, there's a great reading on uh, which, unfortunately, I. Uh, I could send a I could send a link out because yeah, now I have to go to web archive for it. It's off the internet. And mm -hmm. it's called the Algebra of Algebraic Data Types by Chris Taylor. It's a multi-part series. And mm -hmm. it shows you how you can use polynomial manipulation on these algebraic data types and find a lot of cool properties. Is it okay, cool. Uh, I'll I'll add that to yeah. the notes. There's also there's another article which I think is a lot less good, uh, but isn't it still exists on the internet without web.archive, uh, which is shorter. It's called the Algebra and Calculus of Algebraic Data Types. It sounds like you're approaching cubics, the, the parametric. Uh -huh. what, can you re repeat the phrase the for me? Incremental parametric syntax. The incremental parametric syntax. It sounds to me like that very similar to this idea of a universal abstract syntax tree. Like, a, But I know that that's an idea that yeah. you aren't so excited about. So what's the difference? Uh, yes, the universal AST is something that I love to hate. And so the, the idea of the common representation is that, that uh, I'm going to create a single abstract syntax tree. And instead of having Y loops in C and in Java, I'm going to have one kind of Y loop. 
and I'm going to translate all of C and Java and JavaScript into this one abstract syntax tree. I'm going to write things on this one thing. And when I want C or Java back, I just output them. And this is how most program analysis tools work. And it works great for program analysis. So, so architectures like GCC and Clang and LVM, they, they'll do this. It's like you they run GCC on, on, on Java or Pascal or Objective-C or Fortran. You'll get into the AAST for C or Fortran, do some stuff there. Then I'll change them into, I think the IR is called Gimple. I'll change them to some common representation, do some more optimizations. And then you'll from this, from this IR, you'll pick a code generator off the shelf and get your x86 or your ARM. Uh, but there's two big things wrong with it. So one is that I said before, the power design is not what it can do, but what it can't do. And it's very important, not just what you can represent, but what you can't represent. So uh, there are a lot of, uh, when you're reading a Java program, you have to read it differently from a C or C++ program in that uh, if you see a local, if you have a local variable X and it's an int and you call a function with X in Java, you know that X has the same value afterwards. In C++, um, that function you call could actually take X as a reference and then modify it. And now you have a different X in the calling function afterwards. So the presence of pointers and especially references makes a lot of program analysis things difficult, both computers doing program analysis, but also just you reading the code. So the knowledge that your programming language does not have pointers or not a point arithmetic is very powerful. It's just absolutely lost. And that's part of the reason why all these different cloud infrastructures, they will do some their optimizations at the language-specific level before going to the IR. But the other big thing is that when you want so program analysis is relatively easy, you suck everything in, it's okay if you lose information as long as you have enough to still produce useful bug reports, whatever you're trying to analyze for. But in source source transformation, well, if someone types in 0x10 and they get out 16, they're going to be mad, especially the program transformation didn't touch the part of their code. So you need, so you need to keep all this information about language-specific stuff around. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing with Cubics. Yes. Yeah, so in Cubix, we don't have a single representation for C and Java or JavaScript. We have a family of representations. Each of them shares common pieces, but each one specific to that language and able to store it, track everything. So hold on. So uh, to me, it sounds like um, in, in Cubix, like um, if, if I have an assignment in Cubix, it's, that's a data type that is very general that can like yeah. handle all the quirks of every language. But, yeah, but... so we have a general assignment data type in Cubics, mm -hmm. but it has it has custom pieces per language. So, so an assignment is general, but a left-hand side is language-specific. But even still, there's some common left-hand side. So every language has an, a left-hand side that can be a single identifier. Uh, some languages have more, but everyone has an identifier left-hand side. And so I can write a pruning transformation 
that can see and identify your left-hand side and do something and know it's something for every single language. Got it. Okay. So to it, to me, it sounds like um, that is a universal AST. It's ju- it's just not what people thought it would look like. Uh, you can call it that, but, but <laughs> it's the thing is, it's it, it's a different kind of type. It's instead of saying I have a type IR, I'm going to convert, and I'm going to convert all my representations to that and convert it back to different representations. I have a parameterized family. And so I write my types in a different way. And in the talk, uh, in the talk I gave on this, you can see a recording of this talk on YouTube that I gave to the Boston Haskell group, as well as one I gave in Israel. Uh, and I have a nice story about how as soon as you declare the type signatures, saying I convert things to common IR and then back to the different representations, you've already lost. And uh, and one reason is that when you write down those types, you're you're basically claiming you can convert any language to any other language, which is too good to be true. And so the catch is you get things like, so there are some, there are more than zero frameworks that do try to let you write, that do use common AR and do try to let you write transformations. And all of them will mutilate the code. So one example is the Compass Rose framework from, um, it's either Lawrence Berkeley or Lawrence Livermore. I think it's Lawrence Livermore. And in their manual, they have an example of a programming transformation written on C. And it and it converts all the for loops into while loops, even though it did it should have been able to leave them the same. Why? Because they use a common IR. And this IR does not have for loops and while loops separately, it just has while loops. Got it. Yep, that makes sense. Uh, I have a friend, uh, Aiden Kanif. I don't know if you know. Yeah, yeah. You know? Uh, I had a Skype with him uh, the other month. Cool. Uh, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on his approach. Um, let's see. Uh... For, for anyone who didn't listen to the episode I did with Aiden, uh, he's building um a tool just just for one language but it's um code generation so like you you would explain to his tool um how you want to write backend routes for your express router and uh, and then it could generate you know if on the front end you need some data it could generate the backend route for you automatically or vice versa that sort of thing yeah um so it actually is from local languages and um, they are well. I don't think it's it's from one language to another. No, I think no, it's not. And so the, the 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 interesting thing about it, I think, is just identifying the problem, and that they found he found the problem, which is practical, but and but also relatively simple to solve with simple technology. And so I think that has a lot of potential. My my big point of skepticism is the flexibility of their matching, which is. And they're basically using they're basically using tree patterns, when which are a pretty easy thing to come up with, and it is very easy to to overestimate. To think you think this is how what code for doing this should look like. Very easy to underestimate just how much variability you can see in that, and so it's 
whenever you get into application where it's important that you find every case where something happens or even 95% of the cases, then pretty soon you need much more sophisticated technology. Uh, but I did, I did tell him some of these problems. I told him to look into associated commutative matching as something which is very important, but it takes some architectural changes up front. So and I found him pretty humble and hopefully he'll be able to do some great stuff. Cool. Sounds good. Um, okay. Cool. Thank you. Let's uh, let's talk about um, the coaching business you run. Sure. So yeah, maybe give a. Uh, I'd be curious to know yeah how it got started. Um, so a fun story. Back when I was an undergrad, on uh, I was deciding whether I wanted to do software engineering programming languages research with Jonathan Aldrich, or to do cybersecurity like like analysis of binaries research with David Bromley. On um, Listener, you might have David Bromley has become very famous. Uh, uh, you might have heard of the DARPA Cyber Grand Challenge, where they basically people program computers to hack into each other, and or and stop each other from hacking into each other. They ran they ran a contest at DEFCON. His team um, for all security won that contest. So he did some pretty awesome stuff involving binary analysis. So I was choosing whether which professor to work for. And at first, I, ch I chose Brumley. So I was going, taking the elevator back to my room to send the email to, to announce this. And then I changed my mind in the elevator for a very bad reason, which I thought, oh, maybe if I worked for Jonathan Aldrich software engineering research, that will suddenly make me a better software engineer. And then I'll be able to do stuff faster. And of course, that was silly. But the funny thing is that over the next many years, it actually became true. And that, and that as I got a deeper understanding of, of software engineering and being able to see the preconditions and postconditions of functions, I actually discovered I'd become very good very fast. Um, it became very obvious when I joined Aptimize. And um, so the person who replaced me at Aptimize basically said that my code was like a poem like one of those beautiful Haskell verms you see, except that this was Java for Android. And, wow. And so that that code base has, you know, managed to survive very well, easy to make major, done some very major architectures to it uh, at, in relatively short periods of time, pretty low bug rate. All, all things are pretty important, especially given that we are under very heavy constraints because, to make something with few bugs, because if something goes wrong, it's an, it's an SDK that other developers put in their apps. So if something goes wrong, first, the, our customers have to upgrade their version in their app, and then their customers have to download the new version. So, so you want to get things right. So so I actually stayed on as a contract for Optimize in grad school, so making some extra money on the side, didn't like living like a grad student. Uh, and I had one instance with a coworker where she had committed some bad code. People were criticizing it. She didn't understand what was going on. And I sat down with her and taught her some basic, taught her some of these software engineering concepts, which are some things that 
I think some people have intuition for, but are pretty non-obvious and not many can really explain very well. And that made a huge difference for her. I just realized how satisfying that was and like, and also how impactful that was to make her better. Cause like much more impact than I could have an hour just doing it myself. Uh, so about two and a half years ago, I started a company doing this professionally. Uh, my first client was someone who had just been fired from their job. And a few months later, they were a totally transformed person. And suddenly we're getting offers left and right from Google and Facebook and are now, now are quite senior at the company and having like fresh Ivy League grads look up to them. It's a huge transformation for this person. So, yeah, so, so over the years, I've crystallized a number of different teachings, uh, which are largely inspired by uh, my knowledge of the academic side. Basically, the way I look at it is every time someone writes some kind of program analysis or synthesis tools, there's some insight behind that about how software works. Uh, um, and so my goal is to kind of teach this intuition without having someone having to spend years studying type theory. This is actually a lot of the stuff I'm going to talk about in my strange loop talk, which is coming up in a couple weeks. So one example I really like right now is if I have a function called sanitize that escapes all single quotes, and uh, what you're really doing is that you're creating a notion of a sanitize string, which is separate from this function. And this idea of a sanitize string can be hidden, meaning that if I were to write my own code, which sanitizes the string exactly the same way, then there's a sense in which it's not legal to use that because the notion of sanitize is opaque. And this is something which you could write down very clearly in a theorem proving language like but it's something which is like, it's almost kind of mystical and ethereal. You just look at normal code because you're talking about properties and abstract ideas that are not present in the program at all. Yep. And, and in fact, so much of what makes good software involves working with ideas that are not present in the code directly at all. Some, something in the, in the design space, which gets lost when it's turned to code. And it's kind of interesting that this is an idea which sounds almost kind of crazy and mystical in programming circles. But in other circles, it's just mentioned offhand, something obvious. So uh, in a thread that I'm in the other day, a uh, discussion, it's like this famous researcher says, you should document the module by saying what secrets it hides, what decisions it's made that can change no one else can care about, can know about. And the offhand, oh, but this is much harder to extract in the code. It's just, it's just not present. So you mentioned that how in a language like you, I think it was cock was the language you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, you, you can communicate the high level notion of what you're trying to do. Um, to, to, to some extent, and you can write things like this function must take a sanitized string. This function makes a string sanitized and, and set it up in a way where the only way to create a sanitized string is to call that function. And if you write your own function that sanitizes that string, then it's not sanitized you might have replaced all single quotes, but you don't know what sanitized means. Oh, well, well, that, that I understand. But how about like uh, a formal definition for sanitized to like make sure that 
the definition of that of sanitized is yeah, also yeah in cop you could actually would actually write down a formal definition of sanitized uh, you can make you can make that a private definition and you can prove that your sanitized function satisfies a definition but, it. but so it's, you it's can't prove part. that for any function in another module yeah, yeah and so it's two parts you like you describe the you, you describe uh, the implementation sorry the um ideal the thing that's ethereal in most programming languages, you can make it explicit in cock, and then you write the implementation code, uh, the lower oh, level code, and then you prove it. In some order, yeah. And Got it. Okay, yeah. You could do it in either order, but, but they, they go hand in hand. Um, yeah. And I see the proof as less important from a design point of view. But just having just having an idea that there is some kind of concept which is not present in the compiled in normal source code but is present in this design space is very important okay. so um is the solution that we should all be like we should have the language we, we should bring it to our code like we should bring that feature from cock to like every language um, that, that uh, possibly and so there already is some variation in this and like in python is actually very non-straightforward to define an interface in the Java or C sharp sense, and saying that these are the functions which other people should be allowed to call. Here's an abstract, an abstract description of what they do, which is separate from any specific implementation. You can you can do that in Python, but it's I, you, you almost have to work around the language to do it. Whereas it's just very natural in Java or C sharp. Um, so, so so a lot of things in that spectrum, but. It, in my business, the angle I focus on is more just teaching people to think like this, mm -hmm. whether even if they are working in Python or Ruby. Got it. That makes sense. I think I think that's a great stopgap. Uh, just in the interest of improving programming at the, like the language level, mm -hmm. I, I'd be interested because um, I think a lot of my best insights for improving programming are taking things that I've taught to students very instructionally, like like the way you're doing. But and then come up, and then come up with creative ways to embed them into the language themselves so that they don't even have to be taught because yeah embedded. So uh, so with with that in mind, you, uh, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on like almost like higher level languages where you can retain more of the abstractness of your idea. Uh, so like you you're not losing because when you uh, like as I've seen you write in other places when you. Um, Write an implementation for a high-level idea, um, you you necessarily lose a lot of the notion of what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. And so, what, what, um, yeah, I feel like you're someone who would know the like state of the art on the on what a what a higher-level specification language would look like because I, um, I have no experience with those languages. Yeah. Uh, so, I've done a medium amount with a number of different specification languages. Um, uh, I don't, I don't have experience using any of them for, for, de for deployed systems. For that, you might want to talk to my acquaintance Hillel Wayne, who is another blogger and an expert in TLA plus. Got it. Okay. Uh, and I, I think you mentioned somewhere that you, you are familiar with Sketch, which it sounds like is related to this idea. Oh yeah. So my, my lab built Sketch. So Sketch is, I, Sketch is very much not something. Okay, I guess it kind of lets you express your idea at a higher level. So Sketch is a general purpose program synthesizer. 
And its big thing is the idea of a, a sketch is a program with holes. So, so some of the early applications were you say uh, things like here is a very very dumb implementation of linkless reversal, which is like what you just remove stuff and add it to a new list, and it, and then you want the more efficient version of linkless reversal. So you say okay, I know. It is something that's going to involve a while loop, and it's going to involve some combination of these assigned simpler operations. Here's a soup of possible things you can do. Here's a reference implementation. Go, go find some way to put these together into a program that does the same thing as a reference implementation. And it would. The way it works, it gets super nitty gritty in the implementation. And it actually does some bit blasting, which means it creates a difference. It creates it. It basically looks, expands your program out to a static graph, and unrolls your loops, looks at all the bits that can be in your program, and and does solving techniques on the, the bit level. Oh wow! So on the implementation side, it's super nitty gritty, not very abstract at all. But from another perspective, you can use it to raise the level of abstraction and say, I don't care about the details. I just care that it It does the same thing as this reference implementation, or it satisfies these properties. And here are some constraints and how it works. Okay, that makes sense. Um, I, I like to end with um, opportunity for you to uh, mention, you know, ways if you, if you're interested in being contacted by people with questions, like uh, ways sure. to contact you, your your uh, your like places you produce things on the internet, anything you want to sure. get out there or want help with. Um. So, my blog is pathsensitive.com. And I, I mostly blog about advanced ideas related to software design. You can also check out my papers on Google Scholar or on DBLP, the Computer Science Paper Database. And my coaching business is jamescouplecoaching.com. I offer one-on-one -on -one coaching and as well as a web course and in-person courses to individuals and companies. Uh, the next advanced software design web course starting on October 11th. I actually have a special offer for listeners of this podcast. So if you go to jamescouplecoaching.com slash Steve, then you'll get a special offer, a special bonus if you sign up for the course. Um, the course the course is six weeks, basically take you through a number of big ideas about software engineering, things that are tent that can change the way you view code, but are not very well known. You can check the testimonials, gotten some pretty amazing results, people's saying it made them with them way better, including pretty, both junior people and very senior people. Uh, and, you know, and it's done in a pretty structured way where both you'll do pretty low level drills with small code examples. And then I'll also give you a walkthrough of a large open source code base and say, and I'll show you how this idea affects this real code base. And that's something else entirely. And when I side projects for way too long has has been the area of binary modification. So I have my other area of expertise, which I haven't talked about at all, is in how to modify programs without a source code and in reverse engineering. So at so Project Iron Fist is a game mod um, for the classic PC game Heroes of Might and Magic 2 that I've been working on with some international collaborators for a long time. Yeah, you can check it out at ironfist, I-R-O-N-F-I dot S-T and see how we work our magic.
And of course, my personal website, which I'll update sometime this year, probably, is jamescouple.com. Cool. That's awesome. Um, well, anyways, thanks again for coming on and, and uh, talking with me. I learned a lot. Yep. It's good to talk to you, Steve.